my uh, title <clears throat> is Some Sweet Blessings of Masculine Christianity. That's the title I gave some months ago. And <clears throat> what I'd like to do is put it in a context and then, and then give you about 11 sweet blessings of masculine Christianity. Uh, the context is first this. <clears throat> I ask that this booklet, 50 Crucial Questions, be put on the table for everybody so that I could just relax and say that the, the exegetical footwork is here and I don't have to do it again here because if I tried to unpack my biblical foundations for why I think there is such a thing as masculine Christianity, that's all we do. And I think what you'd what I'm expected to do is give some practical implications and applications to the life of the church. So um, this is the 20th anniversary this year of the emergence of the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and the writing of the Danvers Statement. Wayne Grudem and I wrote the Danvers Statement. Actually, I wrote it, Wayne tweaked it. I wrote this and Wayne tweaked it. Uh, whenever it has Wayne Grudem in my name, I wrote it and Wayne tweaked it. <coughs> <laughs> which is a great partnership because Wayne sees things I miss, and he's a good tweaker. Um, I don't think this one is there, but this is important, and I'll refer to it. All of these, these, these two, are chapters in the big book here. So if you have this, you don't need these unless you want to have it separate. So Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, Wayne and I put together um, 1991, I think it was. can't remember so that's that's the uh, context in terms of foundations. But I thought it's really not fair, I don't think, to to say nothing about foundations. So I'm going to say something, and I'll try to keep it short. I, I, I put down one, two, three, four, uh, four pointers where I would go in the Bible to support such a thing as masculine Christianity, that there is such a thing as masculinity and femininity that are not simply physical. Everybody knows we're different physically. That's not an argument. But that there should be manifest differences that are not merely physical is very controversial today. <clears throat> so what, number one, I'd go to Genesis 1 and 2, and I've written an article where there are nine pointers before the fall and right after the fall that male leadership was God's idea, not a result of sin. And just one example of the nine would be God coming to the garden after the fall and saying, Adam, where are you? Not Eve, where are you? Why? She sinned first. She got us into this or not. Maybe not. God's knocking on the door and say, is the man of the house home? And so that seems very significant that he would go after Adam when they had gone down together like that. Uh, number two, I'd go to Ephesians 5, <clears throat> where husbands are told to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And then it's unpacked in terms of Christ's leadership and his provision and his protection. And those would be three very crucial issues of masculinity in relationship to a woman, leader protector, provider, feeling a special responsibility there. Number three, I go to 1 Timothy 2.12. I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And I would unpack the qualifications you have to put around that because of uh, women doing some teaching in the New Testament. And yet, uh, I would stand there and say the eldership, teaching, have authority seems to me to be a summary of how elders are different from deacons. And so that's basically Paul's shorthand for saying elders in the church ought to be men, spiritual, humble, Christ-like leading men. And number four, I would go to uh, Luke 6.13 and point out that Jesus chose 12 men from his disciples to be with him and to be apostles. And there would be other places where you could go, but... That's all in the books, and uh, I don't think that's why we're we're here. That's context number one, biblical foundations. Context number two, I'm still just giving a background for the 11 things. Context number two is uh, homosexual behavior is being defended relentlessly 
in our city. Uh, this is day before yesterday in the Tribune, if you saw it. 515 Ways Minnesota Discriminates. So that's an attractive title. You think immediately race. I do anyway when it uses that phrase. It doesn't mean race. It's not about race at all. It's about domestic partners. And uh, show you the kind of discrimination they mean. <clears throat> For example, while family members of a patient in a public facility have a right to be notified if the patient is moved, or if the patient's care has changed, these same facilities don't require notification of a patient's same-sex partner. Or consider this. The spouse of a hospital patient is the first person a physician consults if the patient is unable to consent to treatment. But the same-sex partner of a patient is not included in at all on the list of people who may provide consent, and, and so on. There are 515 things like that in Minnesota law that they're upset about. And the point is, this, this article doesn't even begin to argue for the legitimacy of domestic partners. It assumes it, and now we want to get the laws in shape. This is the air we breathe in, in Minneapolis, in Minnesota. The air we breathe is defending of homosexuality and a feministic air, which leads me to context number three. Well, the point there is being clear on masculinity and femininity is going to help us navigate these waters. Number three, TV and movies are not governed by a biblical worldview, and so we absorb assumptions about the way men and women are portrayed that may be far from God's calling. The very roles, as I see it, on television and in the movies, the very roles that the New Testament is written to correct from the fall are the roles that are highlighted and perpetrated in most TV shows and movies. Namely, uh, men are either wimpy or abusively dominant, and women are either sexually manipulative or powerful and dominant. And what the Bible does is navigate away between those those abuses of what real femininity is and real masculinity is, but but the world doesn't have a clue about that that navigation and those balances. And so our children and ourselves are breathing the air of feminism every day. And there's no way they could absorb a biblical vision of manhood and womanhood without our help. Number four, context, fatherlessness is a tragic destroyer of young men in our day and women. A little example, I suppose the reason I thought of this one is because I was sitting with Talitha. My wife is in Africa right now, so I'm playing Mr. Mom, Mr. Mrs. Mrs. Whatever. I am usually dad and mom together. And so Talitha is 12, and she goes to Hope Academy, and, and she was almost in tears last night because a little boy was expelled from her class, her sixth grade class. Not suspended, expelled after nine suspensions. And uh, I had talked to the principal of the school about this situation two days ago, and he was almost in tears over it. And Talitha was because she likes this little boy. He's a pain in the rear end. But, um, um, And I just feel so bad about that because she was saying, what will he do? They'll send him to some public school, and then he'll really get in trouble. And and she was so redemptive in her orientation, which is exactly the reason I send her to Hope, because I wanted to feel redemptive love for people different from her. And and uh, kid has no dad. Most of the kids in Tyler's class have no dad. And uh, without a dad... To, to navigate the meaning of manhood is almost impossible. Who, who, who am I? What do I do? What am I supposed to be as a boy? What does boy mean? Nobody's telling me what boy means except all the wrong impulses. So that's a huge, huge issue, and I want us to get that right as a church so bad and find out ways to begin to be redemptive in, in fatherlessness. And the fifth one is to simply read for you Larry Crabb's first two paragraphs on page nine. You can go there with me if you want. Grab one from the middle of the table. He wrote this a long time ago, but it's still true, I think. The more deeply I move into the lives, this is page nine, 
The more deeply I move into the lives of people, the more clearly I recognize the unique struggles and joys that come with our existence as male and female. When we blur the distinctions between the sexes or trivialize them into shallow stereotypes, we limit our opportunity for enjoying the creative brilliance of God. In my judgment, one of the central needs of Western culture in our day is a clear definition of masculinity and femininity. More personal and social problems than we suspect have their roots in a failure to live in the richness of our unique sexuality. So that's a pretty high description of the issue from Larry Crabb, and, and many people would, would agree. That's all I want to say about context. That's out of which I'm speaking here when I address the issue, some sweet blessings of masculine Christianity. And, and what I have in mind is this church and my longing that it express masculine Christianity for the sake of the men and the women and the children who are here, because I think it will be good for all of us. So let me try to define what I mean. This is almost impossible. Um, I remember talking to a, a long-haired hippie type who was unbelievably conservative uh, about 30 years ago, sitting in my living room. His name was Mark, and uh, he now teaches literature, I think. He was getting a Ph.D. at the university in, in literature. And uh, we were talking about Olivet Baptist Church and uh, these issues. And he, he, sent, he was totally complementarian. That's my preferred word rather than traditionalist or patriarchal or whatever. Uh, and, and he said, I was trying to figure out a way to help people get it. And he just threw up his head and said, John... Either you get it or you don't get it. Either you feel what it means to be a man or you don't. Or you feel what it means to be a woman or you don't. And there is really a lot of truth to that because you can't put words on it. As soon as you choose a word, somebody thinks of a qualification for the word. And yet, frankly, I don't have the luxury of saying that. That doesn't make a long sermon. Like, either you get it or you don't. See you next week. You gotta, I'm a preacher. I gotta talk. I gotta use words. The Bible is written in words. We don't have the luxury of just saying to people, you don't get it. I think that's a escape hatch for all kinds of issues, but. So here's my definition of masculine Christianity. Um, the theology and the church and the mission are marked by overarching male leadership. Choose overarching, not exclusive, marked by overarching male leadership and an ethos of tender-hearted strength and contrite courage and risk-taking decisiveness and readiness to sacrifice to protect and provide for the community. Dash the feel of a great majestic God making the men lovingly strong and the women intelligently secure. I didn't expect anybody to write that down. And uh, I don't know how you ever get it, but there's my effort. I'll read it one more time. And The theology and the church and the mission are marked by overarching male leadership. And an ethos of tender-hearted strength and contrite courage and risk-taking decisiveness and readiness to sacrifice to protect and provide for the community. The feel of a great, majestic God making the men lovingly strong and the women intelligently secure. So that's a flavor of what I mean by masculine Christianity. Now I've got 11 sweet blessings that I believe come where God is enabling you to cultivate such a ethos in your church or your organization. Number one, in this ethos, men are finally freed to have feminine traits without being effeminate. And women are finally freed to have masculine traits without being tomboys. It's really interesting, isn't it, in our language that we have the word effeminate, but we don't have the word masculinate. 
I'm not sure why that is, but when I was groping for something corresponding on the male side to effeminate, which is, takes the word feminine and makes it bad, um, which it is. Everybody knows when, when somebody's effeminate in a way that's just, hmm, it feels unnatural. Whereas there's a really healthy way for a man to have feminine traits, and there's a really healthy way for a woman to have masculine traits. My wife and I have talked about this a lot over the years. We're, we're really an odd couple in that if you give us all the tests, she's the man and I'm the woman. Uh, and we've, we've dealt with that. I'm, I'm the tender, romantic, affectionate, touch me, talk to me tenderly, and, and she is, get it done, just do the work for me. That's all I, that's all I want. Just empty the garbage, keep the car running, and, um, and, uh, I say, hmm. <laughs> so we've, we've got this figured out for ourselves, and what we have said to each other is a lopsidedly feminine woman is not as admirable as a feminine woman with some pretty strong masculine traits. And a lopsided masculine man is not as admirable as a strong masculine man with some significant feminine traits. And what I'm arguing is that when you create a large, strong, masculine ethos, that can flourish with freedom. Because a man... In, a, in an atmosphere where there's a strong sense of men are men here, he can relax and let his more nurturing or tender side flourish. And so with the women. Whereas if everything's up for grabs and you're not quite sure who's what or what's what, you, you, you feel off balance. You don't know how to be yourself. So that's number one. Number two. In this ethos of masculine Christianity, men are more properly attracted to the Christian life when it does not appear that he must become effeminate to be a Christian. Men are properly more attracted to a church and to Christ and to the Christian life where he picks up intuitively you don't have to be effeminate here. You don't have to be a woman to be a Christian. When you have an atmosphere that is strongly masculine, men can be more naturally at home, can be more naturally drawn. The dominance of female leadership undermines the proper sense of a man's call to be a leader, protector, and provider. He'll just pick up, if this church is dominated by women, he'll pick up that it's not really for me to flourish here. I won't come into my own. I don't compete with women. I don't fight women. I don't move over and up around women. I, I move away when women are in control. Here's an example. I went, before Bethlehem called me, this is 27 years ago now, I was called by a church in Duluth to come uh, just talk, because they knew Bethlehem was talking to me. And so it was inappropriate that I become a, an official candidate there. They said, just come talk, come talk, you know, in a living room in the afternoon. I said, okay, I'll come talk. So Noel and I went up to Duluth before I had interviewed here, and and there were two women and about four men in a living room, and they began to ask me questions. And, and here was this young 34-year-old with a family, and they would have liked to have me come. I was picking up to be pastor. And, uh, and then somebody brought up women elders. And I said, well, I can tell you where I am. And I said, I don't think women should be elders. And there was just dead silence in the room. These two, these two women there <clears throat> were, and and uh, and they said, "Really? Why?" And so for about a half an hour, I, I just unpacked biblical texts and gave them my experience, things like this. When I was done, both these women were in tears, and I thought, "Oh, this is bad." And it wasn't bad; it was amazing. 
There was a young, a young one, I guess in her early 30s, an older one, probably 65 or whatever. And uh, the young one was just shaking her head like this. She said, I didn't want to serve. I didn't even want to serve on this committee, she said. I don't, I don't have any leadership aspirations on the eldership at all. I just, what you said just makes so much sense to me. Interesting little princess, she and her husband got in their car and drove all the way down here to have dinner with me just to follow up on that. Even when I'd said, I'm not going to go here, they just wanted to hear more. The older woman, she said the most significant thing. She was in tears, and she just shook her head. She said, until I became the CE director here at this church, my husband was significantly involved. In the last three years, he's just fallen away. There's been an inverse relationship. This is after 30 minutes of conversation. Lights are going on for these women feeling like my aggressive role has undermined my own relationship to my husband and his relationship to the church. So that's an illustration of what I mean by the fact that uh, men will be more properly attracted into church, into leadership, into the Christian life if there's a feel about it that this is masculine to be a Christian. Number three. In this ethos, women are more properly drawn to a Christian life that highlights the proper place of humble, strong, spiritual men in leadership. This more properly feels freeing and safe. It feels like a place where the men in her life might learn to take initiative without being domineering. In other words, if you, if you drew the inference from number two, that this is all about making men feel at home, not women, you didn't understand. This is all about making women and men properly. I'm using that word properly because I know carnal men and carnal women don't like God's order. And so there's always going to be some people who say, I don't like that masculinity or I don't like that feminine or I don't like it for non-biblical reasons. But I'm saying deep inside, written on our hearts, are dispositions that God has put there, and if they see a strong, loving, tender, kind, Christ-like, humble, male leadership, both men and women are drawn to that, and there are various reasons for that. I just wrote down this one. It feels to this woman like a place where the men in her life might learn to take initiative without being domineering. Not all women have men in their lives. I'm going to say something about singleness later. But if, if a woman comes and she's married, and they're kind of hovering on the periphery of church or Christianity, and she comes, she's wondering, would he come? Would he flourish? What's the place for him here? And I'm arguing that most women, if they're deep, honest, when they walk into a church, more important to them than whether it fits everything she wants is, will my man flourish here? Will my man grow here? Will my man come to his own here? And then he could come into his own at home, and then we could have the kind of marriage I've dreamed about. And I think that where there is a modeling of strong Christ-like masculinity among the men, women are encouraged. They're safe. And their men could have a place to, to grow up into what she so longs for them to be. Number four. In this ethos, we are freed to celebrate strong, courageous women of God who love the, vision, the biblical vision of complementarity. We are freed to celebrate strong, courageous women of God who love the biblical vision of complementarity. Complementarity. The, the stronger and the clearer is the masculine ethos, the more unthreatened men and women can be with very strong women. There will always be in the church very strong women, strong, thoughtful, intellectually, strong, emotionally. And I don't feel threatened by them at all. I could name a bunch at Bethlehem. 
And they like it that they're not threatening. And they like it that the men are strong. Whereas if you turned it around, those women would gravitate to take over. They really would. They, they just can't help it. They're so competent and so strong. And so women like that, I think, delight in a place to flourish as women doing their kinds of ministry, being strong in the views that they express, and don't in any way call the men into question by exerting that kind of thoughtful strength. And you can not only celebrate them who are there, but you can celebrate them in history. You can have women's events. I was so glad to hear that Mary's doing this women's ministry event because we don't have to be afraid that, ooh, what kind of women would come to that, you know? And what kind of ministry are we really talking about? And I mean, just, we don't, we just, we know who we are. We're, we're content. We can walk right up the edge and take risks and celebrate women. We can, we can bring Helen Rosevere in at the national conference and give her a platform to talk to 3,000 people and risk saying, well, I didn't think women were supposed to do that. Uh, because we've thought through what that means to us. And why and how. Number five. In this ethos, men are awakened to their responsibilities at home to lead the family and protect the family and provide for the family. A clear definition of manhood helps a man take responsibility. That's probably one of the biggest issues in our church right now as we move towards a more aggressive men's ministry and, and the relationship between heads of homes and youth ministry and all these things, how they interrelate. It is crucial that we define manhood and model it in such a way that men awaken to the fact that around this place, I got some responsibilities at home. I don't coast or I'm out of sync here. I have to step up to the plate and read my Bible and read it with my wife and kids. That's a feel that a man ought to have and would have if, if there was a flourishing of strong, masculine, spiritual leadership. I'll give you one concrete illustration if, if it would help you make progress in helping men do this. Now, here's, here's one of the reasons men don't do that, and there are more than one. They feel inferior to the wives. And they are inferior to their wives. Let's just face it. Spiritually and when it comes to reading, the prevalence of, of lousy readers are, is way more prominent among boys and girls. And so you get this guy. He had an eighth, This is a real, real, real live illustration of Bethlehem. He's got eighth grade education and works in a trade. Good. Makes a good living. And she's got a high school education and some college. And she's quite articulate. She can just talk her, you know, talk circles around you, and, and he, he doesn't talk very well when you try to talk. He's a little bit self-conscious. And, and I sat, they were having an awful marriage problem some years ago, and I was sitting in my office, and I said, no, are you, uh, let me make up some names here. Let's say Jim and Mary, okay? Uh, Jim, are you, are you leading Mary at home in devotions? Let's be concrete. Do, do, do you lead each night, you at three kids, do you, do you get together and, and read the Bible and pray together? No. Why not? Well, uh, she just, she's just way better than I am at all that stuff. Now, the people who promote sec competency-based secular, uh, sexuality would say, let her lead, for goodness sake. She's gifted. Take over, Mary, and lead your family in devotion. He doesn't want to. You're equal, 50-50. You've got the gifts. Competency is what matter, not masculinity and femininity. You don't, that's where we go. That's, I think, not where the Bible would go, and it's not where a woman's heart wants to go. So I said to him, let me ask you this. I know, I know she's better than you in these various ways. It's okay. My wife's better than me in a bunch of ways. Can you find a Bible in your house? Yes. Can you tonight at 8 o'clock, just before the little kids go to bed, um, gather your family into one room? Can you, you have much that, that much authority, make them all come to one room? Yes. Okay. C could you just open your Bible at John chapter 1 and say, kids, we're going to 
read the Bible tonight, and then we're going to pray. And they're, of course, stunned. Daddy's, Daddy's doing this. And, and he opens the Bible, and so we're going, to, we're going to read our way in the next month through the Gospel of John. And then he turns to his wife, he says, here, now you read, you read the first couple of paragraphs, and then I'll, I'll pray. She's glowing and happy to do that. She reads it, and he, he might say, Tommy, you pray first, and then I'll pray. I said, now, can you do that? That does not take any college education. That takes guts is what it takes. So that's what I mean by, this is not a competency issue. This is not like, I've got a real educated wife, and I'm a bloke, so this will never work. It will work. She didn't marry you for nothing. She she saw something in you that drew her to you, flourish, get become the leader in that simple sphere and it will go out to others. And I'm just arguing that will happen more readily where there is a clear definition of masculinity and living out in the church. Number six, in this ethos, youth leaders and parents will catch a clearer definition of how to answer the question of a boy, Daddy, what does it mean to grow up and be a man and not a woman? Mommy, what does it mean to grow up and be a woman and not a man? That's a question for which feminists have no answer. Because they don't like the last phrase. If you ask a feminist, what does it mean to grow up and be a man? They'll have an answer. And if you ask them, what does it mean to grow up and be a woman? They'll have an answer. And they'll be virtually the same answer. Honest, integrity, mature, take responsibility, generic, 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 generic. But as soon as you add, Daddy, what does it mean to grow up and be a woman and not a man? What makes me different, and I don't mean plumbing, what makes me different? There the answer ceases because it becomes too controversial. And so my... This was the chapter in the book that was hardest to write, and I think it's probably the most significant. I'll just give you my definitions. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. Definition of femininity. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from Worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. Now, every word in those definitions carries a ton of freight, and the book is just an exposition of those. That's my effort to give an answer to my little girl. So when I sit on the edge of Talitha's bed at night, I'm regularly thinking, and I put my hand on her, and I bless her. I'm regularly thinking, how can I get this woman ready to be a woman and not a man? How can I get her ready to marry and have a properly complementary relationship. And we talk marriage a lot at age 12. She likes to think about it. I got an email from a friend who, for me, it was a brokenhearted email because he said his daughter, who's, I don't know, 23 or so, uh, came home, not a believer, brought her boyfriend and announced that they had gone to Las Vegas and gotten married, a pastor friend of mine. And uh, I wrote him a long email of how sad I was. And the reason I felt so sad is because I thought of Talitha, your mom was dreaming about looking for the dress together. Your mom was dreaming about planning. Your mom was dreaming about knowing the man. I'm dreaming about standing at your side and lifting your veil and kissing you and handing you over for him to be the main responsible person in your life. I'm dreaming of that. Don't, don't. And I just looked down. I told her that little story. I looked down. I said, Talitha, don't ever do that to us, please. And she got a big smile on her face and said, What kind of dress do you think Mommy would like to have? (laughs) (laughs) She really does like to think about those things. It's amazing. She's ten years away or so. She said, When do you think this will happen? I said, Oh, ten would be about right. (laughs) That's when we were. I was 22 when I got married. That's number six. Oh, let me just illustrate. Our elders, last elder meeting, acted on an approval of um, 
Guidelines for Masculinity. Where's my book? There it is. So this is the booklet written by Albert Moeller, From Boy to Man, 12 Marks of Masculinity. And we, we read it together as an eldership, and then we talked through whether we could approve of this. And with some little tweakings, we said, yes, we approve of this. Now, that's really important. If you'll put this in the hand of your youth leaders, put it in the hand of your elders, and say, this is what we're trying to make our boys. This is what we want them to grow up to be. And then we distilled it into a six-point thing for masculinity on a piece of paper. Number seven. In this ethos, the meaning of masculinity and femininity in singleness will be clearer and a lifetime of singleness without sexual intercourse will be more understandable and livable. Masculinity and femininity in singleness. If we just define masculinity and femininity in terms of marriage, we will leave hundreds and hundreds of our people at Bethlehem and some in your churches adrift. What does that have to do with us? Are we just generic? You know, does our manhood and womanhood mean anything in the dance of life as we do things together? And my argument would be it hugely does. Your masculinity and femininity are significant in the way singles relate and finding your identity in the Christ who never had sex is huge. We were dealing with the issue of public advertising of condoms here, what, 25 years ago? And you've been around long enough to know how big a controversy that was, whether advertised on TV or in the newspaper. And I was interviewed and wrote a thing for the newspaper and got mail and it was so illuminating to see what, what kind of criticism came back. Because I argued, let's, let's not do that. We don't need to do that as a culture. They're plenty available. And if you push them as the way to safe sex, it's not going to help the situation much. And one man wrote and he said, who do you think you are to tell me that I can't have sex or shouldn't have sex till I'm married? I have an, a sexual identity. You're going to tell me not to be human? And I wrote back to him, since he was bold enough to give me his return address, I wrote back to him and said, my main problem with what you say about not being fully human till you have sex, since you are that, is that Jesus Christ was the most fully human being that ever lived, and he never, ever had sexual intercourse with anybody. We need to be able to say to men and women that part of their identity as male and female does not have to include sexual intercourse. I mean, we live in a day where the pressures they get to experience that and the message that if you don't, you're defective. You haven't really lived. You're denying a huge part of your humanity if you don't find a friend to sleep with. If you can't get a spouse... Get a friend. And I think in an atmosphere where sexual realities are made crystal clear and defined masculine and feminine not simply identifying with marriage will help them much. Number eight. In this ethos, the corporate worship teams, the corporate worship teams up front, are not dominated by women. The songs chosen are not dominated by one-sided feel of intimacy or ma majesty. The presence of masculine men and strong theology and music, strong music, give the corporate worship a feel of strength that helps men discover and express the fullness of the emotions toward God that God calls for. Oh, this is really tough. To, to inherit, for example, in a church, a worship leader who's effeminate, maybe even gay, is so problematical for so many pastors. And uh, a worship leader who may not be effeminate, but is unable to attract men to sing with him, lead with him, and communicate in the leading that these songs are about a great and majestic God to whom to follow is warrior-like. 
And in that, in that big, strong, majestic context, then the intimacy times, the tender times don't feel so weird to men. I mean, if you, if you walk in and all they're doing is swishy swaying and, and love, you know, love songs to Jesus and it's only that, men are going to feel like, oh, it is weird here. I don't think I want to, I can't, that girl up there singing with that breathy voice about her affections for Jesus, what does that do for me? Number nine. In this ethos, the God of the Bible will be more fully portrayed and known than where the tone is more feminine. The God of the Bible is overwhelmingly powerful, authoritative, and often violent. Read your Bible. More often than not, God is violent. He was violent in the Old Testament. He's going to be violent in Revelation. He's handing people over to wrath today. God is violent. He is Lord and King and Master and Sovereign and Father and Ruler His tenderness and gentleness and patience shine in their beauty because of appearing in this dominant light. Women need an ethos of this kind so that they can relax and be more their nurturing selves without fearing that they must work to create the ethos of God's grandeur lest it be lost because the men are not speaking and modeling it. In other words, the, the only way that biblically tenderness and kindness and meekness and patience and a, a female nurturing, caring spirit can flourish biblically is against the backdrop of a massively big, powerful God who inevitably has a masculine feel to it. Inevitably, you can't, you can't talk about God as king and ruler and sovereign and leader and lord and husband and so on without it having a masculine feel to it. It just does. And then it's against that big backdrop that his amazing condescension, his willingness to take little children in his arms and his willingness to deal with women in the most respectful way his culture ever saw, that starts to feel beautiful instead of effeminate or collapsing all things into, into the feminine. So I think the God of the Bible will be more fully portrayed where there is a dominantly masculine feel to the spirituality. Number 10, in this ethos, preaching is more readily prized. In this ethos, preaching is more readily prized. Preaching as expository exaltation. That's my definition of what preaching is. A forceful acclamation of the greatness of God and a passionate appeal for full orb response. Full orb response to him. The fear of strong preaching is part of the effeminizing of the church. And the full range of the way God is and appears in the Bible is not known where preaching is simply casual or conversational. It's no accident that the emergent church speaks of conversation only, not proclamation. It's offensive to speak of acclamation and proclamation. We're just having a conversation here. And anybody that starts to lift his voice or do any kind of forceful gesture or any kind of way that seems powerful, ooh, that's, that's the old school, that's the old way. We just we sit in circles and we converse. Well, that's feminine, and uh, it will go nowhere in the long run. It will go nowhere in the long run. It will just be fascinating for a season with people in reaction, and then in a few decades it will be no more. Only it will have destroyed many in the process. Number 10, in this ethos, preaching is more readily... Oops, I said that already, didn't I? Preaching is more... Readily prized. Now, number 11. In this ethos, a wartime mindset and a wartime lifestyle 
will feel more natural. A wartime mindset and a wartime lifestyle will feel more natural. I don't think women should go to combat for this country. And the implication of that is that while we're all soldiers for Jesus, if you have a masculine feel to the spirituality in the church, we will more readily conceive of ourselves as warriors with a great foe and a great leader, and we're going to lay our lives down to advance this cause. And our women will come in beside us there and do valiantly with us, but they want their men to be their leader warriors here, and they'll they'll go out and risk their necks on the battlefield to put these men back together when they've been chopped up. But if we say we're side by side and the women are fighting and we're fighting and there's no leadership here, then we will not be biblical in our wartime mindset. So I I think a right wartime mindset and wartime uh, lifestyle will flourish better where there's a masculine feel to the church and the ministry. Those are my 11 sweet blessings of masculine Christianity. I'm going to stop, and and uh, I assume we'd go to 1.30, so we had about 10 more minutes, but I'll, I'll let Joe make the call there. So I'll, I'll throw it open to questions of any kind whatsoever that you have that come to your mind. And I'll just say I don't know if I don't know. observation was that one author suggested we return away from the word gender to the word sex to describe our differences because the word sex captures the physical dimension which is the most obvious and the word gender is grammatical in its origin that is he and she are masculine and feminine pronouns um i fought that battle once uh I made that very case at Bryan College when I spoke there for the um, on a lectureship in manhood and womanhood because in the left-wing feminist university settings, that's exactly the case. The word gender was preferred precisely because it's a social construct and you make it what you want, whereas sex is stuck with realities of plumbing. And therefore, we're forced to think of differences when we use the word sex. Um, I haven't carried through the battle very successfully. It felt linguistically hopeless. And so it's not been a priority of mine. What it stands for, I totally agree with. And I do lean towards using the term sexuality rather than gender distinctions. Because I know that historically, that is in the last 40 years, the, ter- the gender studies at the university are called that precisely because it is a social construct that you can make whatever you want. I can make you feminine or masculine, and we create those. Whereas if you called it sexuality studies, which nobody does, you know you'd be stuck with dealing with the realities of our, of our physical differences. So the person who said that is on to something very wise, very sharp, you men just have to decide in your own milieu, is, is that a battle that you can carry through? And uh, I haven't made it a priority. The question is, if most churches are still generally led by males, why has the church experienced a feminizing? I would say this, most churches are led by pastors who are males, but not led necessarily by males at other significant levels. Um, And so that would be a part of the answer that men haven't stepped up to the plate across the whole lay spectrum of leadership. And part of that is because women have, and part of why they have is that men haven't. Um, it's kind of a vicious circle, and but your your suggestion is probably even more to the point, namely our pastors are are feminized pastors. They they uh, are afraid to say or do 
anything that would call attention to these things because they've absorbed from the culture the mentality that they shouldn't lead with putting that foot forward, masculinity. So I think th those two things go hand in hand. Yes, most senior pastors in, in evangelical churches anyway are still men, but no, the other leadership, the boards, see most, like in, in, in many denominations, evangelical denominations, they uh, try to construct a leadership board in such a way that women can be on it. They'll call it stewards or, or something. Avoid the word elders so they don't have to argue about First Timothy uh, 2 or whatever. Uh, and I think that bent is to give the whole church a flavor that the strong lay leaders here are often women. And uh, I think the church should have the feel of the strong lay leaders are spiritual, humble, Christ-like men. The question is, if you're in a denomination or a church that is stresses egalitarianism over against complementarity and the pastor has come to the convictions of complementarity, how quickly, maybe more, how do you move towards leading a church? Um, I don't know the answer to the quickly thing, but here's the strategy I would follow. I would take my time and win a people's trust by exegesis, by expository preaching, so that they discern over several years, this man stands under the Bible. He's not riding any ponies. He is a, a word man. Now, that'll, that'll lose some people along the way, because you'll just touch on enough things that they don't want the Bible pushed. They want other things. When your trust is rising and they know you're a Bible man, then as you move towards controversial issues, you go to text and you just deal with text. You know, you don't have to use any buzzwords, complimentary or whatever. You just go to Ephesians 5 and you open up the beauty of what it means to lead like Christ in a marriage. And then do the same thing with, with others. And, and uh, if, you, if you come at it exegetically and having won their trust, then I think... You have more likely success than than if you say, okay, you know, one year into it, we're doing a series on complementarity, or a series on masculinity. I think better do to you know to do a series on Ephesians, do a series on First Timothy, uh, and let it come where it where it comes. A second thing I would do is I would I would take my most trusted men and begin to teach them at a small level, meet with them on Saturday mornings. Share your deepest, strongest convictions. Ask for their wisdom, and and don't don't be a one man. You know, don't don't make these decisions yourself. You you just it won't work in the long run if you try to do things just as a one man show. You have to have around you trusted leaders saying, "Do that. We're, we're with you." Let me see if I understand the first part. How. Since 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 I have some feminine traits that my wife doesn't have, you think that might be characteristic of senior pastors? And how can a masculine person come to him without threatening him? Hmm. It, the question doesn't make sense to me because I don't feel threatened, and so I'm trying to figure out what's my struggle here. Why, you know, um, I. Um, my guess is what makes for a, an effective leader of a large organization who leads by the word is not his feminine traits, but the right combination of uh, tender-heartedness and strong, uncompromising conviction, decisiveness. It's, it's just the coming together. And, and the strong side protects him from being vulnerable to the more touchable side. Touchable meaning, I think I, I cry pretty easy. I'm, I'm, I'm not hard to move by other people's emotions. I feel a lot of pity for a dog that's been hit or a person that's in trouble. Or when, when I deal with this little, this little fella at Talitha School, I just wanted to cry with her last night. That, 
but but I'm I don't feel like I can be easily manipulated because I'm that way because I've got these convictions that are like ballast in my boat. So maybe the, maybe the answer then is, uh, and a, a fruitful leader will always have significant ballast in the boat, so that even though his his uh, sails of emotions can flap easily in the wind, it's blow on them and they just flap. <laughs> uh, he's not easily tipped. Over. Your other question: How's it work out in the men of the of the church? Well, there has I think there are a lot of amazingly strong, gifted men here. They're uh, men who have a, a robust theology and um, strong intellectual grasp of where they're coming from. Uh, and a zeal to lead, find a home here. They, they're not threatening anybody. That's the kind of men there ought to be. And, and so uh, we want their tribe to increase. Um, we're not nearly where we need to be. That's why so many things are in process right now. And, and there are loads of men who don't step up to the plate at home. And so and I was thinking on the way over here, this may be encouraging to some of you uh, um, when you when you've been at a place for 27 years and you're 61 years old, and uh, Lord willing, you have seven or eight years left, um, you're just so used to things going bad and going wrong that it just doesn't threaten you anymore. You're just so I'm just so used to getting discouraging emails that that I just say, okay, now 20 years ago I might have thought well, maybe I need another church. <laughs> or another job or something. I don't, I don't ever think that way anymore. I think, okay, I've got eight years. We'll work on this. We'll work on this. I'm working on this issue till I drop. I'm not going away. I'm, I'm just, my, the, the, uh, take my ball and go home. It's just, I'm too old. I'm not going anywhere. I just want to keep on uh, working. And so when it comes to manhood and womanhood uh, and anything else in the church right now, all the broken stuff at Bethlehem right now, all kind of broken stuff around here, uh, I just think, okay, I've got seven, eight years. And you know what God is going to call me to account for it when I die and you stand before him? Not success. Just did I faithfully work on it? Did I go to the people? Did I, did I do biblical things? And that's a great relief. Oh, this is such a great relief that I don't have to fix this church. I should try. And he'll, he'll ask me, did you stay up late, get up early, talk, love, phone, visit? Did you do the stuff that the Bible says to do to help fix the problem? Not, did you fix it? That, that won't be the issue. The issue will be faithfulness. And so that's in, in manhood and womanhood. We say, okay, I'm going to keep trying. You know, the reason I said yes to this invitation is because, okay, I haven't talked about this in a long time. I need for my own soul to to just go back to the board, look at it a little bit, think about it, and, uh, and, and hopefully make this recording, put it up on the Internet so 30,000 people will listen to it instead of 50, and, and maybe make a little, little contribution that way. The question is, how do I see this playing out in evangelicalism in the future in view of roadblocks and difficulties. You know, I, I'm more encouraged today than I was 20 years ago. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Maybe it's because I've been around for so long. There's been a self-selecting process. But in the early 80s, this was, I was so embattled, it was unbelievable. I mean, I just, people were just ripping me to shreds over this issue. And there was disagreement in the church about what women could do and whatnot. And I just don't fight it anymore here. Um, there are so many 20-something, 30-something young people who, who, who love the vision when it's when it's spoken in a biblical richness that's not lopsided it's not abusive it's not manipulative it's not exploitive it sounds like women are flourishing as women men are flourishing as men they can flourish together say, yeah yeah that's right that's rich that's good so at least here anyway I don't feel as embattled as I once did then I, I look out across the scene and I see um, some denominations have just sold their soul to this, and I don't know if they'll ever turn around, I sold their soul to feminism or egalitarianism. And, and others, it seems to me, uh, and cross-denominational groupings are uh, amazingly 
articulate and flourishing in this. So I really am happy to let God be God. I don't, you know, eschatologically, I don't know where we are on the time scale. Uh, it could be very near the end. could be another thousand years. And uh, if we're near the end, I think my understanding is that the dark gets darker and the light gets lighter. I see that in Matthew 24. Be, and so I, I don't become pessimistic about what God might be pleased to do, say, in our city here. I mean, why? If, if there's going to be this great glacier of lukewarmness that comes over the age at the end, that doesn't mean there can't be a red, hot Twin Cities church across the denominations, just full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Word of God, a shining light all over the world, while the rest of the world is in darkness. So when I, when I think about progress in this area or any of a dozen areas, I don't think pessimistically. Pessimism is generically appropriate globally at the end of the age. It seems to me that Matthew 24, Mark 13, the book of Revelation shows some pretty horrible things uh, toward the end of the man of sin and so on. But as far as specificity of churches and cities and movements, there's nothing in the Bible that says your denomination couldn't be totally faithful when Jesus comes back and your church could be just blazing with white-hot worship. What would I say to pastors who hold, in, in principle, I suppose, to the form of masculine leadership and are playing it out abusively? You, we, will, we will preach and we will write a nuanced understanding of leadership and strength. I mean, you hear it in the way I talk. When I, when I speak of male leadership, I say humble, contrite, lowly, Christ-like, meek. Those are the words I stick on the front over and over because I know of those kinds of abuses. And we, we just want to constantly wave the banner that it's not the egalitarians who have the balanced view. The, the, the imbalanced views are, it doesn't matter, there's only competency-based activities over here. That's egalitarianism in its full form. And over here, it's um, domineering, abusive, insecure, male rulership. Now, what we want to do is say, both of these people are seeing part of the truth, and we don't want to be forced into splitting this thing up. We, we want to see strength, and we want to see leadership, and we want to see provision, and we want to see perfection. And then we want to label, you know, put all kinds of qualifiers on that so that there's a, a meekness to it, and a tenderness to it, and a humility to it, and an openness to reason and purity, the wisdom from above in James 3. So my, my answer is to, to, if I can smell that kind of thing when I'm with somebody, I'm just going to check him. I'm going to call him into question. I'm going to say, you know, the way you just said that's really offensive. That's not going to get you anywhere. You're going to lose most of your people just because you sound like personally you're on an ego trip here or you're insecure or or whatever. So, yeah, join me. Join me. We, we have a huge job in finding ways to articulate this that feel compelling and winsome and beautiful. That's, that's what I feel my main job is on this issue, is to find words that make it look like what God really meant it to be, namely totally satisfying for men and women. I mean, there are no marriage. God does not mean for manhood and womanhood in a marriage to be frustrating. <laughs> it's to be satisfying. It's the way we're wired. And so we need to find a way to help people see that. Yeah, the point is that in churches and movements, there seem to be some progress in academia, not as much. What I think about that, and you're absolutely right, and I don't know what to do about it. I, I, uh, I admire presidents of institutions who have guts to make this an issue. Most of them in seminaries and colleges feel like that would be suicide. That would simply be suicide to, to make this an issue. And so it's constantly treated as a secondary issue, along with, you know, minor things like tongues or whatever. This is just, and here's, here's the sad part about that. 
You can't be neutral. You default to feminism. You have to, because if you say that we are uh, going to um, be neutral here, meaning we will let there be feminists on this faculty and we will let there be humanitarians on this faculty, the next question is, but will there be women teaching theology at this seminary? And the answer will be, well, some. Well, then you've given away the store. You've, you've put all the brothers who believe that that shouldn't happen in a compromised position. They can't go to those classes or they have to go there in a compromised position. So you haven't been neutral. And that's what's happened at the seminaries we care about. And I've written, if you want to see the paper, I've written on it and sent to two or three deans in a row to the effect that um, those of us in, in, in the Baptist General Conference who have complementary convictions feel compromised. We, where do we go? Where do we turn to, for our guys? Because at, at Bethel, it's, it's not a, that's not where they're going to go. And it doesn't work to say we have some complementarians on the faculty because when you go the other direction, you've already shown it's not a big issue and you've put people in a compromised position who don't think that women should do a certain thing.